to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Welcome back. Hope you all had a lovely, albeit probably quiet Christmas and New Year. And uh, here we are with the first podcast of 2021 and what I certainly hope will be a much calmer and more predictable year than the last. But it doesn't look like that is going to be the case for the next few months, I guess. But this week I'm chatting to Richard Ball, who is the executive chairman of the Cowclot Collection. And I'll let Richard do the full introduction to these, but in essence, a small collection of a manor house hotel, a restaurant, a pub, and a couple of smaller hotels predominantly dotted around the Cotswolds. And I was really keen to chat to Richard, in the main because a number of people have recommended him as a great human of hospitality, with a wealth of knowledge and a great perspective of business, hospitality, people, and all the great stuff about our sector that I love. I particularly enjoyed Richard's story, since he's really built the collection that he chairs over a significant period of time, in fact getting on towards 40 years. I often hope that these podcasts will appeal not just to the people who have perhaps worked in hospitality for some time and are interested in hearing about their peers and what they are up to and gleaning any useful nuggets of wisdom from our shared experiences, but I hope it will also inspire future hospitality humans to feel that this is a sector and an industry that should be more than a job for them too, a vocation and a life's adventure surrounded by human beings and humanity often at its best in a way that can lead to an interesting and rewarding life. Now the fact that Richard started his business with his dad and his family and he recognises all that his family risked even selling grandma's house to purchase a rundown manor covered in vines and a somewhat dilapidated air. The fact that they started small with only seven bedrooms, but had a vision and a yearning to create something and to look after people. That the journey was tough in those earlier years, he very nearly lost it all before the adventure had even really properly started. But how, somehow, the stars aligned and through working hard and never losing sight of the vision, and in many ways fulfilling his destiny, through partnership, investment, continual improvement, and not being in a hurry to expand, Richard and his team have created something beautiful. Regular listeners will know that I have a love of the independent side of the sector. What Richard has created would not be of interest to the global brands of the world. It's too small and eclectic and complicated and challenging to run. A number of properties, arguably with not enough rooms to make operations easier in the traditional sense of operating hotels and restaurants. But the properties look stunning and it takes people like Richard to create and operate such miniature beauties. I hope his story, along with those of the likes of Robin Hudson and Jared Bassett, sleeping on the sofa in the bar because they could not afford to employ people overnight, will inspire others to know that you don't have to start a business with unlimited resources to invest. 
Now, during the conversation, we touch on things like rewilding land and the benefit of naivety, 18% mortgage rates, the dangers of Michelin stars, running venues as satellites, wider challenges and opportunities for the sector in 2021, and our mutual hope that people will strive for a more simple, perhaps less luxurious life, where time with other humans is the greatest priority over and above material items. Enjoy the show, and if you do, please remember to rate and subscribe on your podcast player of choice to keep up to date with future releases. And for show notes and links to some of the other things that we discuss in the show, such as the charter from Sally Beck, please sign up for the weekly newsletter via www.humansofhospitality.co.uk. Okay, enjoy the show. Richard Ball, Executive Chairman of the Calcott Collection, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast today. Really appreciate you sparing the time. Alas, we are not face-to-face because of the modern COVID world we live in, but can you just explain to people listening, where in the world are you, please, Richard? Oh, well, yeah, thanks, thanks Mark, and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Uh, well, I'm at home in uh, my office uh, uh, in Bath. All our, all our hotels are, are closed now, um, so I'm, I'm based at home here, here in Bath. Okay, nice. Yeah, home office. And, and your venues, uh, they're all sort of, they're all fairly close with each other. How far away are they from you? Well, the majority are. The majority are all in the South Cotswolds, which is about a 45-minute drive from me, uh, which is about perfect. It's a lovely drive to work every morning and a, and a very relaxing uh, wind-down drive home. And we have another one uh, all the way up in, uh, in, the, in the beautiful North Pennine Hills. But uh, uh, that's that's another story, and that that's a longer a longer journey. And alas, I don't get there too often. Maybe once a month, but uh, that, that that gets me out of the area. What's that one called? That's called the Lord Crew Arms. Ah, yeah, okay, cool. I did there's, see. Actually, it. There's, two, there's two Lord Crew Arms. I should make that very clear. Both very close to each other, believe it or not. And we're the one in in uh, in in the village of Blanchland, uh, not 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 the other one. Okay, are they both good? Well, let's say the one in Blanchland <laughs> has a certain something. okay (laughs) perfect so um really you know excited to chat up you're you're a a genuine i know you're a genuine sort of human of hospitality richard because you were very kindly uh you know sort of insisting that i came up to see you in person and i was going to stay in the hotel and have a good chat which was really kind of you um but you've worked in the industry for for multiple decades you and your businesses have won lots of awards you've got a great reputation for working in the sector through sort of master inholders pride of britain hotels and all sorts of other roles so it's really good uh to finally chat but just to finish that bit off the calcott collection lots of people won't uh, I've heard of it. Can you just explain what what that is? How many venues are there? Yeah, uh, well, we've got four four principal um, hotels. The first one, um, if you like, the mothership is is Calcott. It used to be known as Calcott Manor. Uh, we we dropped the manor a few years ago for for reasons that are probably obvious to most people. Um, but Calcott is our mothership uh, with thirty five bedrooms, uh, two restaurants, a, a beautiful spa with with a membership, um, and and some uh, some a barn with with event facilities in. And so on and so forth. Uh, we have Barnsley House, which is 20 minutes from there, uh, near the town of Sister, which is an 18-bedroomed hotel, a uh, beautiful hotel set in very historic gardens. And uh, adjoining that almost, really, just across the road is, is a, a, a third unit called the Village Pub, uh, which is really run under the same management. But that's got six bedrooms and is exactly what it says in the tin. It's, it's a wonderful village pub, which uh, nestles very nicely alongside a, um, a luxury country house hotel. It's a lovely combination. Uh, and then we have another hotel within the same region, another 20 minutes away, 
um, in the Cotswolds called the Painswick, which is in the village of Painswick, and that's a, a smaller unit. It's got 17 rooms, and we opened that as our kind of cool cousin, if you like. It's a little less expensive. Uh, it's, it's, we tried to make it very cool. It's very informal. Um, and trying to hit a, a younger age group, if you like. And then finally, we have uh, the Lord Crew Arms, which is uh, a little bit bigger, 21 bedrooms. It's in a really historic and beautiful village in right in the middle of the North, North Pennine Moors called Blancheland. Uh, and that has 17, uh, sorry, 21 rooms. It, it's, it's got a pub feel to it, but it's very much a hotel and it, it's very special, very romantic. Yeah, amazing. They they all look stunning. It was interesting actually. I was so I was on your website yesterday, having a little look around, and uh, I was on the Painswick website and thought, "Oh, that looks really lovely." For some reason, it sort of stood out. And then I read that it was for your sort of your younger clientele. So, can I just ask what what age is that? Please, uh, I just want well, to know if I should feel better or. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's actually very interesting. But certainly, when we bought it, we we uh, we positioned it that way. We positioned it to aim at a kind of uh, uh, 30, 30s type market. Um, mm. And we, we've had a certain amount of success there. We've certainly grown that age group quite a lot. But to be honest with you, it does attract all age groups. It's very multi-generational, uh, which is yeah. nice. We, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't gone young to the, to the extent where it excludes other age groups. Um, <laughs> that's that's uh, good to hear because yeah. I thought it looked lovely. I'm 45 and I was kind of hoping you were going to go, that was young. Yeah. But I didn't feel young reading it, but I felt young because I liked it. But, I think uh, we pitched it perfectly at Mark Cribacci. You know, you would love it. <laughs> it did look, it looked really lovely. So the the original building, um, incredibly rich heritage dating back to the 1300s. It, it belonged to the church, and I think it was Henry VIII acquired it, and, and in essence gave it away. Um, is that sort of rich history? Is that still apparent? You know, do you feel a sense of responsibility as the the current custodians of that building? Is it sort of is it an obviously historic place? Well, to be honest with you, no. I think uh, I mean history is clearly very important. Um, uh, it, it isn't. It isn't a building which shouts at you. Uh, you know, um, history and, and huge heritage. When when you see it, it's actually a really charming collection of farm buildings that really own more to the kind of 18th century than, than anything else. Uh, we we have kind of set our our kind of historical story, if you like, around a very old barn which sits on the site, which we know definitely did belong to the the Kingswood Abbey, and and we still got the inscription stone which tells it it was built in 1311. So that's our little bit of ancient history, but most of it really is, as I say, a beautiful and charming farm in a typical Cotswold style. Uh, I think if we if we'd opened it uh, now, we we would we would probably have called it Calcot Farm. We'd have been far more honest. Uh, but back in the eighties, when we started it, everything uh, needed to be a manor, and <laughs> that, that's how yeah. it, it got elevated in that, in that way. Yeah, and and I read two hundred and twenty acres. Was is that still the case? Was it always that way? Or? It was a big, uh, big old well, plot. Uh, we, initially, we we didn't buy all that land. Initially, uh, although that was for sale, we just bought lot one, which was which was the buildings. Um, over the years, we we've managed to to pick it up and acquire it, and and uh, we've got a, a substantial part of what was a much much bigger farm back now. Um, but we're we're very lucky to have those acres. It, it's been a real asset to us, uh, you know, much more than we knew when we when we bought it. Particularly at the moment, I imagine you can still take quite a long walk, even though you're you're lo- you're COVID locked up. 
Uh, well, yeah, we, you can. And actually, we, we've had got a lot of pleasure from rewilding that land. And we bought it. It was very uh, over-farmed. Um, it was at a kind of agricultural wasteland. And uh, we've got a couple of people on the team who are, who are really, really, a couple of our gardeners who are really passionate about uh, restoring it and rewilding it. Um, and we, we've, we've let it go is one way of putting it. But it's attracting all sorts of um, of amazing wildlife and rare butterflies and rare plants and, and it's been a real pleasure to us and, and the team and our guests love it. it and it's a very big part of what we do at Carlcott this this whole idea of uh, getting back to nature um it, it's been a real bonus to us that's interesting yeah so i hadn't picked that up so what, what where, where's the motivation for that then for rewilding well, I think it really came from we we didn't set out to buy that land. What we what we needed was the um, was the farmyard that was attached to it. Uh, we needed that to uh, convert one of our historic barns into something useful for the hotel and, and to add car parking. So we had to buy the farmyard, and they'd only sell us the farmyard if we bought the land, which is two hundred and forty acres. And as I said, when when we acquired it, it was a an agricultural desert. Uh, we didn't want to farm it. We didn't want to become farmers. So. It was a kind of natural move to say, well, you know, if, if we if we let this go a little bit and uh, let let it go wild and, and maybe graze a little bit, you know, what's going to happen to it? And as I say, we have we have a guard on the team who who was really inspired by that and and uh, has taken great pleasure from being its guardian, uh, and mm. it's really really reaped some rewards. But it's it's happened very slowly over time. It, it hasn't been a an instant plan of let's do this next year. It's just been a very very slow back to nature uh, but our, our guests love it now it's a wonderful place to walk and and, and feel nature um, so we're, mm. we're very proud of it actually amazing i love that i've been yeah i don't know partly through that. i think i think we have a responsibility being involved in the world of food and drink certainly through the restaurant side but to understand where food comes from and to understand the sort of the impact of agriculture i suppose and and yeah where we can be part of the solution to that and everything we're now learning i think re- rewilding and uh yeah paying back i suppose some of that responsibility is such an important thing that we we should be doing but all too often isn't recognized so well done yeah and i think it's also you know it's part of the experience i think uh uh you know, part of the that one of the cornerstones of, of carcott if you like um it's is this this feeling of, of rejuvenation when you when you come and stay with us and whether that be using the spa or um or having some time uh with your kids or without your kids if they're in the crash or um this having some me time is 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 a big part of it and being able to go and, and walk in in beautiful countryside uh, is is very much part of why people want to escape the city and, and have a few days of of rejuvenation. So it's 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 very important to the whole experience of, of visiting Calcot. Mm, amazing. Well, if you get time, go back and listen. I did a, a podcast with the Ecological Land Trust. So if there's ever any interest in in allowing a little pocket of that, because you know a lot of uh, access to farming is prohibitive to so many of these new sort of small scale. Uh, mini producers, I suppose, who, who want to farm the land in an ecological and sustainable way, but in essence, you know, can't afford to buy a couple hundred acres. So uh, they work with uh, tenants who who just sort of want five acres at a time. But it's a really, it's, it's a nice idea of yeah, allowing some farming to happen, but very much at the heart of it about yeah, e- ecological sort of approach and rewilding. So yeah, go and have a listen if you get a chance. There's a plug yeah, for another I episode. I will. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, so um, interested a little bit just in, in into how this start started. I've got lots to talk about, but in the early days, am I right in saying this sort of started off as a family concern? Did you did you take over from your dad? Is that right? 
yes, it did. Yeah, it, my, my father was was a, a trained hotelier, but he 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 moved quite quickly from uh, his, his Swiss hotel training into industrial catering. In fact, he was the catering advisor for BP. But I, I grew up amongst a passion for hotels. Uh, wherever we went, we 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 we'd visit or, or pop in and see a hotel. If, if we were in London for the theatre, we'd always go and see the new opening. And and I just developed this huge passion for hotels and. I think as a kid, I used to play hotels, you know, that, that's how it started. And so it, it was kind of inevitable that I would, I'd want to do it. Um, and um, I, I, I'd done a hotel training. I'd, I'd been to Oxford Brooks or Oxford Polytechnic, as it was in those days, and um, learned about hotels. I, I'd spent some time working uh, for David Levin at the, at the Capital Hotel in London on a, on a management training program and and spent time you know on the on the front step as a porter and in the kitchens and in the bar and so on and, and learnt from that master quite a lot of of london hotel keeping uh, but london wasn't for me um i i had this passion which really started at college for um uh the idea of, of picking up a building and repurposing it and and changing it and and making something wonderful from it um I, I did various projects actually when I when I was school. I, I remember doing a, doing a project to uh, convert uh, my my old school into a hotel. Went into it in enormous detail, including kitchen plans and full architects plans and full marketing plans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I understand it fell into the hands of a parent at one stage who wrote to the headmaster and discussed that they would consider converting the school. But uh, that that was always always my passion. And uh, when my father. Um, had the opportunity for um, an early retirement package. Uh, he said, "What I want to do now is fulfil my dream and 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 make a hotel." Uh, you know, it, it leapt at me, and I thought, "Well, this this is a wonderful, wonderful shot," and I, I've got to be involved in this. Um, and we set out to to find something suitable and stumbled across Calcott, which was at the time um, uh, quite a small farmhouse, four bedrooms, but surrounded by these uh, unconverted barns and stables, some with roofs, some without, all covered in rambling roses. And it was just uh, the most romantic and exciting proposition to uh, think what we could do with all these spaces and, and how we could uh, make something very special. Um, so we fell for that and we bought it um, in 1984. Looking back, my father's no longer with us, unfortunately, so I, I, I don't have this discussion with him. But looking back now, it, it, it felt like we did this in, in amidst huge naivety. We, we, had, uh, we had no planning permission. Uh, we didn't really have the funds. My father sold his family house and my grandmother sold her house too and came to live with us. But we, we hadn't got the, the borrowing arranged. Uh, I don't think we had a proper business plan. We had some vision and we had some ideas, but I don't think we had the kind of business plans that we we do these days. Uh, we just wanted to do it, and my sister came to work for us too, and her husband, who was a who was a bit of a builder, and we spent a glorious twelve months uh, converting it and opened a year later with with seven bedrooms all in all in the main house, which we done on a shoestring really. Um, but we had remarkable success, considering we had no business plan, um, and I think we established, you know, quite a good hotel. Um, we seemed to win lots of awards, which was great. Uh, we 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 got busy quite quickly, uh, and that's really how it started uh, in 1984.
Yeah, amazing. That's great. Nice, nice story. And I, I think you need that naivety because I think if you did know, you know, probably what you know now, and you realise how expensive it is to kind of to develop and create these things, you'd probably been scared to death. But sometimes the yeah, ignorance is bliss, isn't it? And you can do it on a limited funds if you don't know you need more, basically. So, yeah. Yes, I mean, what I don't know is is how much uh, stress. <laughs> This gave my poor old father. I, mean, I was in my early twenties at the time, and and probably had a right to be naive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've I, I've passed the age where he was in life when he did this, and I thought, you know, that's something I wouldn't want to take on. So, I'm full of admiration that he uh, was he had the 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 foresight and the bravery to give up a very comfortable existence and put everything on the line. I think I just came along, along for the ride, and I, I think I was very lucky to have that opportunity yeah amazing that's great so was it you know when you first saw it in those early days did did any part of you you know kind of could you visualize what it has now become or did this very much uh, you know evolve in your head um that's a very good question i i don't think i think the answer to that is probably no i don't think i ever dreamed it would be uh the size and scale uh, that it is now i think our dreams were step by step um and uh, we dreamt of being able to convert the next building um, uh, and one at a time, and that's exactly how it grew. Um, it, it was one at a time. It, it, it wasn't an easy ride, I have to stress. Um, uh, we we started life with a, a bank loan, or a, a, it wasn't even a bank, it was a merchant bank at the time, which uh, was somewhere around 18%. Um, and that, that was around our next from, from day one. Um, and within you know, four or five years, we're into the kind of Gulf War crisis and the collapse of the American market, which was quite important to us at the time. Um, and after some initial success, we 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 had we had a a fairly a fairly rough ride. Um, uh, and uh, I spent a, a very very difficult couple of year couple of years trying to uh, find a solution for this, which involves talking to lots of possible investors and um, and so on and so forth. Um, and actually, you know, really at the 11 and, and, and a half hour, um, a, a, a lovely customer, a gentleman called Michael Stone, who'd been using the hotel for some time, um, stepped up and said, look, I, I hadn't realized you're going through all this. So, you know, I can't bear it. I love this hotel. You know, I'd love to get involved. You know, I will buy it from your parents um, if you uh, will uh, uh, allow me to, to, if I would stay on and run it for you. Um, I, he said, I don't want to get involved. If I get involved, that's the day I want out. But if you're happy to take it on and work with me, um, I'd love to partner you and and take this forward. And that was really what began the next chapter, which led to our subsequent um, subsequent expansion. Yeah, amazing. That's, uh, I don't know, it feels like the stars were aligned to make that happen, I guess, because presumably without that, well, you know, you say it was 11th and a half hour, was was it very much one of the options on the table was that you were going to have to sell up and get out? Oh, absolutely. Most definitely. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd even you know, talked to administrators. We, we were absolutely against the wall. And this was our, our last way out. And actually, of all the solutions I'd looked at along the way, it was probably the best. I don't think I knew it at the time. Uh, I think at the time it was the only option on the table, but um, uh, I've enjoyed a wonderful partnership with the Stone family. Michael Stone is, is unfortunately no longer with us, but uh, uh, he he asked me to be chairman of the company um, you know, a few years before before he left us. And I now work with uh, uh, his son, in fact, two sons and a daughter who who sit on on my board. And it's it's been a wonderful relationship that's endured for, for you know, a couple of decades now. And it, mm. it, it's allowed the company to thrive as it has. 
That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, because all too often these things, you know, that's not how they pan out, particularly if he's got his own kids and they bought it. You can sort of see how, you know, that yeah, they end up running the business. So it's great that you've managed to work sort of symbiotically over all that time and create what you've created. So, yeah, congratulations. A- a- again, I suppose, um, did you imagine at that time that, you know, you would be here? Because it's, it's getting on towards 30 years or something you've been there now, isn't it? Did, did you think you would stay in that location and do this for that long? Or is it just because you've been loving the journey? Um, yeah, I think I, uh, no, I probably didn't actually, if I'm honest with you, when I started, I thought this, this is, this is a great thing to be doing. It, I'm going, to, I know I was in my early twenties. Um, I don't think at that stage you, you look far that far into the future. Uh, you, you don't, and you certainly don't imagine yourself in one place. So now I, I don't think I did. I think I thought this is going to be a great thing to do. Let's make a success of this and, uh, then, you know, then move on. Um, I think as, as events transpired, um, you know, when things became tough, you know, any any thought of that disappeared. And I, I was just, you know, there was no way I could have left the business anyway. Um, so I, I don't think thoughts whether I wanted to ever entered my head. It, I just became part of me and uh, we needed to put our heads down and, and survive that crisis. And then having moved forward into chapter two um, with these these partners, um, it was time to sketch out a whole new a whole new life trajectory, if you like. And I knew I had the backing and capability to really make something of the company and and take it into the realms of uh, of, of of plans where we'd we'd never never even thought. Mm. And was Michael very much aware of that when you had those sort of initial negotiations? It was partly sort of you know rescuing the existing business and the hotel he loved, but it, but was it very much sort of eyes wide open about you know this is what this could become, but it's going to require a you know significant level investment over a period of time, or, or was it case you know at that point was it kind of thinking this is going to stay as is, or was it clearly on a trajectory for to, to be more? I think uh, Michael and I knew that things had to change, um, although the hotel had been very successful. Uh, we'd we'd probably uh, we'd probably got a bit misled. Uh, we stumbled across this thing called a Michelin star at some stage in our first few few years, and, and uh, it was on, it was probably the, the you know the one of the worst things that, that happened to us because it, it 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 took us away from our our real uh, our real core of, of what we were all about, and, and all of a sudden it all became about chasing these accolades and and i see so many other hotels going down this route and i think just don't do it you just you just don't need to go there but we did and and it probably took us into realms of pretension if i'm honest um and i think it was we knew we had to change and this was an opportunity to do so and i think michael knew that as well so change was definitely on the cards i don't think he'd have got involved if he knew i didn't want that change um I, I don't think he ever felt he would end up investing uh, what he he did uh, along the lines. Hotels are huge on on capital. You know the, the depth of capital you need is just massive, and um, uh, we had some great ideas along the way, and we had some possibilities for expansion, which which felt uh, you know which felt ignore, unignorable. Um, so Michael probably did uh, invest more than he he thought he would ever do at the very beginning but I think he loved it I think he loved the journey and he he got more and more passionate about this world of hotels which was a, a new one to him and yeah. the, the family who were still involved have, have the same passion actually they, they absolutely adore hotels and everything about them and and, and have loved loved the association 
Amazing. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got to, so just to go back to the Michelin star, were, were you sort of interested in that because you thought that it would, uh, you know, it was a good sort of uh, bedrock, I suppose, for the business? If you had a Michelin star, it would make you busier, or was it a sort of a, a pride thing where you just really wanted one? No, we didn't want one. Um, we, we didn't want one, but we, we stumbled on a, a great chef, a lovely guy, actually, a guy called Ray Farthing, um, who, who actually we loved and enjoyed working with at the time he was he was a sous chef at the castle at taunton and and he came in to be head chef and he was so much better than we realized and we never said to him look go and get a michelin star and i think actually he was as surprised as we were when we opened the guide one day and and therefore uh, we had it and at that point it was terrific it was what happened in the in the years after that and and absolutely no fault of of ray's you know he he was just doing a great job but it, it does grab you and you're so terrified of losing it um, you're so terrified of the reputational damage of losing it that it starts to drive you and you, you lose contact with actually what your customers want. Um, you just think, what have you got to do to retain it? And for a small hotel with limited resources, uh, that can be quite dangerous. And you find yourself uh, investing in sizes of kitchens and sizes of teams and and then limiting what you're limiting your product, limiting your menus, limiting your choice, which isn't what your customers want. It's, it's just what the kitchen need in order to keep this this uh, this level of cuisine, which we didn't need. And uh, you know, I, I, it's 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 over egged the fact that you have to have this this wonderful gastronomy breaking um, uh, restaurant in order to be successful in, in our sector. I, I really don't think you do, and we didn't in those days, but we just didn't realise it. Mm, interesting yeah i think like you say it's a, it's a common trajectory and i've had this conversation a lot of times with with my chefs over the years not not even necessarily where they're going for michelin but it's understanding how do you quantify success really isn't it and for me i kept saying look success for me is a, is a busy restaurant it's happy customers it's good reviews and the external accreditation you know isn't what i'm motivated by but i've had a number of chefs who've come in who very much have been wanting that external accreditation and there's been some challenging times sometimes to get them to you know understand that the yeah customer demand and what the customer will pay for has to be the most important thing from a business perspective i think doesn't it yeah and i think 10 years ago it it was really hard to employ a chef if you didn't say to the chef look i I want i want these things out of my kitchen if if you didn't want these things then they they probably weren't interested fortunately that's changed um and you know we we now we now employ a wonderful chef in 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 richard davis who's had all those accolades he's been there and, and got that and he's had he's had the stars and actually uh, he's come away from that now and like so many chefs and says, no, look, I just want to cook. I, I just want to cook great food and I don't need to be boxed in by that. And uh, I think there are more and more chefs out there who feel that way. And as a result, I think uh, restaurants have got better and food has got better. Uh, and that, that's a really positive thing. Mm, yeah, no, agreed. So you then went on this sort of fairly long journey, I think between 1992 and I, th- I think you acquired the sort of additional, the second building in 2009. What was going on in that time period? What were the sort of key decisions that you made during that time that, that really sort of transformed the business and, and built the reputation that you now have? Sure. Well, we, we built Calcott slowly, organically, bit by bit. It was it was three rooms at a time. Um, there were a couple of big jumps when we, we built. One of the first things we did, actually, we, uh, in order to change the direction of the hotel, was to build this second restaurant, which we called the Gumstall Inn. Um, uh, that, that was quite a big step. Uh, but that that was, was re- a repositioning step, really. Uh, we, we opened a, a casual restaurant alongside a country house hotel, which in those days was unheard of. And I think we all... We were probably one of the first people into the into the casual dining market in in that respect. 
Um, and that was a success, a huge success from, from day one and drove the reinvention and the repositioning of, of, of the hotel and, and its atmosphere. Uh, we also, we also, as another big step, built a, a, a spa, a big spa with with, um, with a membership, which was hugely successful. Um, and up the rooms built up very slowly, up, up to thirty-five bedrooms. And at that point, we thought we'd, we'd probably hit a uh, certainly the first ceiling in the expansion of Calcot. Um, and we started to to think about um, a second site. Um, uh, I think I was very keen to try and uh, replicate the model, uh, which was which was based on this this great informality, which which welcomed um, which welcomed families and and was very unpretentious and 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 and, and very welcoming and very fresh. Um, and we tried to look for a site where we could replicate that and and just couldn't find one. We couldn't find one where the numbers stacked up. Um, the the size of investment needed to create that model from scratch, as opposed to bit by bit, three rooms at a time, uh, was just out, out of our reach, and we we couldn't find the right site. Um, at one stage, probably later on, actually, we uh, we we did couple up with an investment partner, and actually we we looked at um, the luxury house hotels as they came out of Von Essen, and and we we bid, we put in good bids for for three of the hotels, but. Um, uh, Nigel, Nigel Chapman, who ended up uh, re- reacquiring luxury family hotels, was was prepared to buy um, a larger part of the stable, and we didn't want to go there. So that was the closest we came to to replicating uh, the Calcot model. Um, but then along the way, things happened which really made us change our strategy, and and we we came across uh, two opportunities in the region, being Barnsley House and Painswick, and they were both very close to Calcot. And we saw an opportunity to pick up smaller hotels um, and really run them from a central base as, as kind of um, almost like satellite hotels around the mothership. They were both hotels where we could see big opportunity. We thought they could be repositioned and we thought we had some skill in that area and, and, and could make a difference. Uh, and that led us really to the, the model we have now, which is, which is very much a, a mothership with uh, uh, some very su- successful and um, uh, hotels op- operating uh, with a lot of uh, central uh, administration control. Mm. That's really interesting. That so so this is one of my sort of things I was looking forward to chatting to you about because certainly chat- chatting to to Robin Hudson at the Pig and to Nicholas at, at Congham and I suppose just seeing the changing trends may- maybe back in Hotel Devan's early days you know some of the hotels were a lot smaller but I guess as as wage costs have gone up and centralised costs you know minimum wage pensions all that kind of stuff we've seen this need you know at what point does a hotel become viable or not viable and it seemed to sort of commonly coming up was a minimum of sort of 30 35 rooms uh, to make it work so i was interested that yeah if you if you found the right model but because by having a number of places close enough that you can run them as a satellite with a central team that puts you in quite an interesting niche really because most people with 16 room hotels are probably coming out of the market because they can't make them work anymore do you, do you feel like maybe you've you know you're, you're in a niche that is you're uniquely well placed to uh, to deliver um, to a certain extent, um, it, it is it is a it's a viable model, um, and uh, so the hotels of that size wouldn't be viable if they weren't um, all in close proximity and operating in in, in this kind of satellite way, um, unless they are run, I think, by owner managers who are putting all their hours in, into the business. Um, having said that, you know, it is it is there's no question about it. it it's a lot easier to to run a hotel 
successfully and profitably if it's got between 25 and 35 bedrooms. So I, I wouldn't disagree with those uh, claims that both Robin and, and Nicholas have made. 30 to 35 is, is the sweet spot and, and very much easier. Um, our other hotels are clearly not as profitable, but I think the, the bigger thing is that they're vulnerable. So if, if we have um, a, something difficult which hits us, be it you know a shutdown because we, we found a bit of asbestos in the kitchen or uh, we've got to have some disruption because we've got to repair a roof um, or a big event in the locality is cancelled, um, we won't even go there with COVID. Uh, but any, any of these type of interruptions can, can really eat up a very limited profit margin and uh, no amount of, of satelliting or central administration will help protect the, the profitability in, in, the, in those kind of circumstances. So they don't have as much fat. But if, uh, if everything is running fine, if we don't have those kind of interruptions and we have a, a good year without any, any difficult things happening, then yes, those smaller hotels can be profitable. Uh, Barnsley particularly, actually, although it's only got 18 bedrooms, it's got a very high room rate there. The rooms rooms are really, really absolutely beautiful and of a very, very good size. And we can achieve a, a high room rate there, which uh, makes it a, a very profitable model. Hmm. So what's the motivation then to, to add those kinds of businesses which you know aren't as easy or as viable you know if you just if you were just a bean counter and you had your spreadsheet in front of you you might avoid them are you motivated by something that's not just uh, profit well i think um i think also we shouldn't let go of the fact that we've built up a brand here uh, we've built a bit of a brand which which, which does help um uh, by having a collection of hotels, uh, they're all aimed at a very slightly different market. Although there's there's a lot of crossover between them, we we like to think it's that they're aimed at the same people at a different stage in their lives. Um, and there's, there's a lot of uh, kind of red threads which go through them, which, which give it commonality. They are all slightly different. Uh, they're all they're all slightly different. They all have their own proposition. So we think we've created a a, a little bit of a brand, um, perhaps with a small b. Um, which uh, adds a certain um, sales value. And by that, I don't mean resale value. I mean, it, it makes it easier to sell rooms into them because they're, they're all drawing off this, this kind of central brand presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's helped. And we wouldn't necessarily have had that if we hadn't expanded in, in, the, in the way we've done. So I think that's one part of it. I guess if I was, um, or if we as a company were all about bean counters and maybe if we had... Um, if we had property and asset managers behind us, then yeah, we'd probably throw our hands up and say this isn't the most um, this isn't the most uh, profitable model. Uh, but we're passionate about hotels, and, and that that drives us. Um, we're passionate about hotels. We 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 love making them better. We we are so drawn into the idea of taking a hotel that is struggling and and uh, and throwing something around it which makes it successful and repositioning it and and we we get so excited about it it's what makes us tick um we have to make a proper return on our investment don't get me wrong uh we we have to make a very viable profit we don't we don't have a backing behind us which doesn't need that return on capital it does um but we're perhaps able to only do we're able to only do the things that turn us on and we and we love to do and and restrict us to that and not just maximize our bean counting Mm, i love that because yeah without you know people like you and and lots of others who love 
this sector, then those kind of yeah smaller borderline viability in the from a big player perspective. You know, I, I was chatting to a to a hotel reseller the other day, and he, you know he was laughing when I said that thirty five rooms was a sweet spot because you know his viability was more like sort of two hundred rooms, and 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 I'm less interested in the big sort of multinational. Uh, players, I suppose, who, who have such huge amounts of investment behind them and, and do become bean counter. And I love these, you know, this is why this is called the humans of hospitality. I love these quirky sort of independent stories. Um, it's a difficult sector. It's all consuming. You know, it's it's very much got, a, got, got to be a lifestyle. Some of the profitability sometimes in the smaller ones can be marginal. Why is it that you love it so much, this sector? Um, well, I, I think it's just, it's, it's, I think it's the creativity, actually. It's the creativity and the connection, the connection with hum- humanity, and it's the creativity. Uh, I was never drawn into the kind of big international uh, career line or even, even the, you know, the city corporations. Uh, I, I, I needed to have the ability to uh, have a vision, uh, see something that could be done, uh, have the ability to create it, you know, in a, in a reasonable time frame and get my pleasure from 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 seeing how it's been created i think that's the first part and i think it's it's a sector where you can do that uh, the bigger you get and the more corporate you get the harder it is to do that uh, so that's probably the first thing and the second thing i think is is the human connection uh, we are so much about people i know it sounds like it, it sounds like a like a cliche but uh, the bigger organizations perhaps can't afford to be so much about people they need to be about about the beans first and 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 the interest in the people will only come because perhaps that brings more beans. I, we we are really connected to our teams. We're so reliant upon our teams, um, and therefore we we get huge reward and huge pleasure from keeping our teams happy and motivated and learning and improving and loyal. Um, and we're also connected to our clients. You know, we see our clients every day. We get to know them. Uh, we get pleasure when they come back and see us. And it's the sweet spot, this sector. It's the sweet spot where you have the ability to create hotels and drive hotels and be part of a hotel business, but you also remain connected with people. Um, and I think that's what makes the sector so attractive. Yeah, great. Yeah, no, I share I share all of that. I'm talking about the the creativity side, which I, I you know I think we are uniquely placed i suppose you know even even you think of our, our you know our houses maybe start to reflect our businesses because we we see design in a different way your venues look like they've got a sort of beautiful mix of classic and modern styles sort of quite rich furnishings but but they they stay they they look like they've got the sort of right level of, of informality and stay relaxed does that come from you have you got an eye for detail in that creative side or have you worked with with a sort of particular designers over the years no, I can't say it comes from me. Um, I think I've got the ability, like so many people, to see what I like and what I don't like. But I don't really have the ability to say this is this is how we achieve it. Uh, I think my input, my vision has been about what we need to achieve, the kind of feel and look and and parameters of, of, of how we go there, levels of formality and levels of fussiness and so on and so forth. Uh, we're lucky uh, in the one of Michael's daughters, uh, Nikki, Nikki Farquhar, um, uh, has, has a great ability um, and passion for interior design. She, she's got a, a completely um, natural ability to interpret what's needed and get it right. Um, and Nikki became involved um, in t- took over the interior design, I suppose, oh gosh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And gradually she's worked through it and put a common style over it. And it's a style that works so well for us. It, it absolutely interprets where we need to be in the marketplace. And and she just understands that and she just gets it. Um, uh, latterly, uh, she's, she's not quite so involved, but um, we have two um, 
to associates of her, great friends of hers who worked with her in the early years, Cathy um, uh, and Caroline, and they've they've taken that mantle on, and and they understand where we're going for, and and we've managed to to have this uh, this central feel of design, which we feel helps deliver the product we're after. Mm. And and what is that? You mentioned the sort of the differences, I suppose, and the same aspect of those different businesses and their different markets. Well, what is that that common DNA that runs through all of them? And you know, this idea, I suppose, that some people are maybe coming at a certain time of their life with a young family, but maybe coming back once the kids have moved out, and it, and maybe it's more about the sort of food and drink and being a bit, bit more romantic. What what is it that the customer would would notice is riddled through those different businesses that brings them together? Yeah, I think I think it broadly comes under the term hospitality. We we have a we have a, a word which we've cloned from that, which we call hospitotally, and it, it's hospitality but with a bit more around it, which actually includes the, the style of the food and the drink. It includes um, uh, a term we use a lot called keeping it real. Um, it, it wraps up all these things, but it, it's really a sense of hospitality. It's a sense of welcome. Um, we a sense of care, a, a caring, a caring feeling uh, that we, that we we portray. Um, our hospitality is really based upon the ability to to read uh, what it is our our guests in our house are looking for, and to a degree um, amend what we're doing to to meet that. Um, and we're very keen about that. We we we, oft, we see there is a danger with with the with informality. You you, oft, you see it so often that where businesses are, are very in, are very in, very informal, and don't rely upon scripts and and bows and scrapes and, and ways of doing things, but but try to leave their teams to do what comes naturally to them. But what you think there's a great danger they can sometimes become too cool too cool for their own good. Um, and the staff can take on this kind of aloof approach, which says, this is what we do. If you like it, that's great. If not, go and stay somewhere else. And, and we, we're we very awake to that. And we try very much to uh, assess people when they arrive and work out whether they want fuss, whether they don't want fuss, whether they want to be quick, whether they want to take time, whether they're stressed, whether they're not, and try to adapt the way we work to, to suit that, uh, that, that need. Um, and I think we've built up a whole a whole spirit of hospitality and a set of rules around that. Yeah, I love that hospitality. It's a great uh, it's a great way of putting it. It's that sort of yeah, so, so many details that make up great hospitality. I suppose. Do you find that you need to recruit a different type of person in the different venues, or can you cross train people across the group pretty well? Uh, that that's interesting. Uh, we, I mean, one of the benefits of having a group, of course, is or a small group, a collection, we like to call it, um, is is that we can offer uh, development opportunities. So, so people have got the ability to move through the group, and we've got some notable success stories there of people who have moved very successfully through the hotels and 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 risen and grown their careers, and that's a really rewarding thing for us to be able to offer. Um, very often, we find that uh, there there isn't a um, um, that there's, a, there's actually there's such a loyalty to the hotel that they are working in that there isn't actually a desire to to cross over, um, and each hotel has built up its own personality and character. A lot of that actually comes from the the general manager, or the hotel director, or whoever is in charge. They they set a certain aura and a certain certain personality, um, and that does drive a personality which doesn't necessarily suit everybody. So. 
we there are differences. There are differences in the in the type and style of people who work in in each of the hotels. And we recognise that, and we like it. We're very strong. We're very strong on the fact we're a collection, we're not a group, and we allow each hotel to have its own personality and its own character. Um, in fact, we encourage it. We want it to develop. And if we're going to do that, we can't expect each hotel to be the right for place for each person and, and some suit some and some suit others mm, perfect yeah no i love that funny enough i've got a, a few venues of my own and it's interesting to see yeah, the different the different person i used to sort of insist on on cross training people and think yeah, it'd be really good you go and work in this one you go and work in that one and actually yeah same thing over time you know they're, they're, they're sort of friendly competition between each other but the teams do really gel and you're absolutely right the different the different gms in those business you can sort of see who's going to work best and it's not that one is better or, or worse they're just different and they develop their own personalities so yeah i share that and sometimes you just learn these things as, as time goes on i guess um i'm keen so so you know great really you know lovely to, to, to hear about your specific venues i'm keen to get your thoughts on the broader industry. So, so one of the other areas that I focus on quite a lot in this conversation is often around the more sort of casual dining sector. And certainly in that world, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, there were certain issues that were around. So there was a, you know, possibly an oversupply in the markets. Um, you know, rents were high. There was a lot of this sort of venture capitalist rollout of the same sort of concepts on, on every high street corner. Uh, and it became one of the motivations as to, as to why I sort of launched this podcast was to get people to understand the difference between the independent sector and the corporate sector. I'm probably less au fait with the sort of, you know, the, the, the country hotels or the, the luxury hotel market. Was there anything that was going on? You know, what was the picture in the world of, of luxury country hotels was it was it was it looking pretty positive was everything rosy or were there some challenges that were going on pre-covid we'll come to covid in a minute uh well yeah no there were challenges and and we've got to be very careful not to forget those challenges um because we will get through covid and we'll be back with those very same challenges and it's important that we uh we we, we don't don't lose sight of that um i mean the, the, the principal challenge of course was was recruitment and getting the right people to run our businesses and that's going to be even even harder when we come out of this um because of, because of brexit and so on so that that is a huge challenge and trying to find people of the right caliber who are prepared to work with kind of hours who have the vocational draw towards hospitality um, is tough and, and will become tougher. Um, we were finding increasingly a need to grow our own and, and bring in people who may not be suitable initially and, and do our best to uh, convert them to the way we work and, and to grow our own. But that was a real challenge. Um, uh, um, and as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, because I know you're you're yeah. in the sector. Get, getting getting the right people to come and come and cook at the right level was was, was e- equally hard. So so that is is a problem we mustn't forget because it, it's it's here to stay and and and, and we'll we'll come back come back at us. Mm. So uh, why why is it so difficult? And what what do you think we can or what are you doing about that? Sure. Well, I mean, I mean, I think as to why it's so difficult, I, I think the industry has had a bad reputation. Um, I, I think actually there could be a really positive thing that comes out of COVID, if 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 I dare use that word, positive out of COVID, uh, without sounding glib. But uh, you know, I think there is a new love for the industry. Um, uh, I think that that could be a benefit that comes out of it. We, we've th- thanks to the great work of, of Kate Nichols and others, uh, the industry has been painted in a great light. Um, and I think people see its value and its worth in a way that they didn't before. So, so maybe that'll help us a bit. But, but we have this 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 European problem and, and this inability to bring in people from Europe, which is going to harm us. I mean, the only solution here, and we all know it, is, is, is to train and grow, and of course at the same time to improve the reputation of, of the industry. 
I think we've made great strides, uh, and I don't by we, I mean as an industry, I think we've made great strides in that direction and they're continuing to do so. It, it's just come a little bit late. Uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do and there's a lot of work to do in that area. But things like apprenticeships and, and internal training schemes um, and a focus on development, a focus on HR, paying better, uh, work-life balance, um, flexible writers. I love the work that um, Sally Beck is doing with the with the hotel charter, uh, hoteliers charter, hospitality charter. I, I think it's exactly what was needed. Um, it was needed five years ago, 10 years ago. But we need to drive that. We need to really all buy into that and latch onto it and drive it and make it happen. Um, and only by doing that, and only by making all those things listed in that charter, can we uh, amend the reputation industry and draw people back into it. Um, it's it, it, it's going to take a long time, but we need to be on it absolutely straight away and, and now. And uh, yeah, I think Sally's made a huge step in that direction. Mm. Funny enough, Sally's been on the uh, on the podcast. So in the show notes to this episode, for anybody listening, I will put up the link through to that episode where we chat about that charter in a little bit more detail, so so people can have a listen. Um, what do you think the biggest opportunities? You know, coming coming out of COVID, we'll talk about the threats in a minute. But what do you think the biggest opportunities over the next couple of years are for this sector? Then, do you, do you know, speaking about the good that might come off the back of COVID and riding that wave of of positivity for our sector, do you see some 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 good opportunities? Well, clearly in the short term, I think that there will be there will be uh, huge opportunities because um, our, our, our beloved public have, have been starved of, of, of what we provide, which is this, this togetherness, families getting together and, and multi-generations getting together and parties and, and getting away from things and having taken time to, to rebuild ourselves and, and me time. All this kind of thing uh, has 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 not been available to us so i think we we can expect um you know a little mini boom once once we get out of it and i'm sure we're all acutely acutely aware of that um going forward i you know i think uh there is i, I think it's been there for a while but i think this whole need for me time and time to focus on yourself um uh, uh well-being and mindfulness, I think all these things have become ever so more important as we've realized you know, the fragility of uh, of our lives and, and uh, how we need to focus on ourselves a little bit and others and our families. And I, I think it's it, it's only accelerated that process. And, and I think as long as hotels focus on that and uh, and focus on the whole, whole kind of experience and restorative um, and learning side of, of uh, getting away and staying in hotels and, and, and having these breaks, I, I think the future is very bright, and, and many of our hotels do that. And it's certainly where we're going to be going to be focusing. Um, and you know, walking gently. I think our hotels have to have to walk gently on the earth. And and, and those those things are, are so acutely in people's minds now. As long as we do that, I think the opportunities are great. Uh, I think. Um, Actually, I remember after the crash of the 80s, and I, I guess I'm, I'm showing my age when I talk about this, but I remember after the crash of the 80s and we had that dreadful recession, I think what came out of that was this nouvelle cuisine thing that came out of that. And, and it was it was this feeling of we've got to strip away anything that's big and grand and come back to simplicity. And I think that's going to come out of this too. I think we're going to come back to what's real. And I think you know the excesses of of, of five star all the baloney that goes with five stars and, and and gastronomy and all the kind of excesses of and wastefulness that went with hyper luxury 
uh, will not be in demand. And uh, there's always going to be room, don't get me wrong, there'll be always be room for the fantastic and beautiful hotels I admire so much, like the Manoir, but there'll be less and less of them. Um, and uh, too many hotels aim at that and think it's the only way to make success in this industry, and, and it's not. And I think going forward, it'll be even less. Uh, we need to get back to what people are looking for to give themselves some me time and some, rest, some restoration. Mm, yeah, I love that. I think there's, there's some great ideas in there. How do you turn that that sort of concept of fragility and time, I suppose, how do you turn that into a tangible thing? What are you doing? What are you offering physically in the in the hotels to sort of, uh, I suppose, to, to fulfill that need from people? Uh, well, of course, things like spas will help and having space so people can walk will help. Um, but I think it's more about the style of hospitality we give and the way we look after people, the way we allow them to relax immediately, um, the way we allow them to have me time, the way we give them space, where we don't uh, creep around them all the time. We, we don't make them dress up. We don't make them um, follow rules. Uh, so allowing people to have time to think about themselves, um, allowing them to come away with their family, have lovely times with the children and not feel they've got to be careful of, of the rules. Uh, provide the ability to look after those children for a while in our crush so that they can go and have treatments and relax in the spa just, just for a while. Um, I think these things are important. We're focusing a lot on experiences. We're, we're trying to create events which uh, involve a bit of learning because we think people want to learn, but they want to go away having having uh, improved themselves from a stay, not, not just uh, chill out and relax. They want to leave having improved themselves. So we're thinking about events and how we how we pull that together um, and offering experiences, experiences which involve the countryside and involve restoration. Uh, yoga is big. Yoga is, is there's so much demand for yoga, which tells a, a whole story in it in itself. Um, and I think spas are important, uh, perhaps not of the size of Calcott's. They don't all need to be that big, but I think somewhere to really feel you've got some, some me time and have treatments and lol in the hot pool. I think these are really, really uh, important going forward. Yeah, sounds awesome. I'm all, all, all the more envious that I'm not actually there in person, uh, making the most of your facilities. Yeah. Um, so here we are, we're sort of, you know, we're in another lockdown it looks like it's going to be a pretty uh, lengthy one we're we're pinning all of our hopes on the vaccination uh, what do you think the biggest risk you know we're trying to, i suppose to get ourselves to a point of uh, being able to bounce back and being able to bounce back fast it feels like we sort of move from having the ear of government sort of pretty strongly back in those early days you know pre eat out to help out but uh, most people i'm speaking to sort of feel that that sort of fell off a cliff at the end of that scheme and we've been somewhat neglected uh, over the winter months what do you think the biggest risks are uh, probably you know in in 2021 to hospitality making the sort of bounce back that it needs to and it should do sure yeah well i mean i i think you know really i i'm not sure that, that, that i follow the, the the central line is i do think that government support has been um has been pretty good actually um and i go back to i go back to that first lockdown and when that that first announcement came in my mind and the sheer terror and panic we realized we're going to have to close all the hotels and and that was announced before we'd uh, been given any any notification of furlough or, or freezing of, of business rates um or the vat rate being reduced etc the sheer terror about how we would survive and actually a feeling we wouldn't survive um uh and i think if you go back to that that position and then look at you know how long we've had to be closed and and how the damage of that has been 
mitigated to a certain extent by the government support. Um, I, I think they, ha- they haven't done a, a, a terrible, a terrible job. Um, I, 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 you know, this this is a devastating disease. It, it's it's something that's completely, um, you know, it's it's unpredictable. It's unprecedented. It's really clever. You don't know where it is. You know where it's going next. And uh, we've given the government the most impossible task, the most impossible. We've asked them to make the most impossible decisions on our behalf. And they haven't got them all right. And there's no doubt about it that our industry has, has suffered from bad decisions. I, I'm absolutely with that. I mean, some of the naivety around the you know, 10 o'clock lockdown, et cetera, has it, it, been devastating and, and you know, got us nowhere. And, and there's no doubt about it that we had made our hotels very safe. Uh, they were they were much safer than 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 that were seen. But you know this this disease is all about human contact, and you know if you look at where we are now, that contact had to be reduced. Um, and I, I guess without, you know, I'm not really a lockdown deniest, like I've heard other people say. You know, I, I think we we had to do this, and so we we had to take this on the chin to a certain extent. Um, I, I feel for um, others in sectors that have been more vulnerable to this. Uh, I recognise that, that we're in a very fortunate position. I mean, we haven't said fortunate. We've taken on massive loans to get through this. Um, those loans don't put us at risk, and I, and I recognise we're in a very fortunate position. They, they completely um, screw up any kind of future plans for us, and they completely change any kind of strategy going forward because we've got some very big loans around our neck, but they haven't threatened our existence, and I know for some, some, some they have. Those sectors in particular are going to need huge, huge support. Um, and we need to make sure that government don't don't lose sight of that. And I think uh, Kate Nichols is doing a fantastic job in, in doing that. She, she's, I don't know where we'd be without Kate Nichols and all she's done. Um, I also think this campaign to get a, to get a minister around the table, seat at the table that, that Robin uh, and his gang have, have promoted is, is so, so important and so needed. We need better understanding of government so that uh, they understand the nuances of the trade. I think if there is a problem in government, it's not understanding the different sectors. We tend to get bunged together into one big sector called hospitality, and that isn't right and, and has led to the bad decisions. They need to understand the nuances. Uh, they need to understand the vulnerability. They need to understand the huge impact that they have on people's lives um, uh, and, and the kind of mental health side of that. So we need government to understand that and be able to react to that. A minister around the table would, would make a big difference for that. Uh, that support's just got to continue. I think if we can extend furlough, if we can be really helpful on the VAT for some time to come uh, to allow those businesses to recover and to employ the people that they, they need to employ, uh, it could make a huge difference to the uh, the recovery of the economy as a whole. Yeah. No, I think there's some there's some there's some good points, and I I, I share your sort of fairly, uh, you know, sort of rational, objective perspective of it's a, it's a shitty situation, and yeah, God, I wouldn't want to uh, be in the job of central government uh, at all trying to help. I, I do think that you know, with seventy percent of the sector not qualifying for those initial twenty five k grants because of the rateable value scenario, and I think some of the headlines around the support, you know, furlough is spoken about, but but you know, the recognition, and, and maybe it is in the restaurant sector where possibly they don't have the same. Same uh, assets to leverage loans. It's kind of like you know, furlough is fundamentally costing those companies uh, quite a lot of money at the moment. And if they can't access the loans at a decent rate because they don't have the assets 
to back it up, then then at least releasing the the grant support, you know, to say look, even the ones above fifty one k, because most restaurants on any high street would have had a rateable value, which means they got zero pounds. So all they've actually qualified for so far, from a grant perspective, is is possibly the the sort of three k in November, and then the furlough where the money goes to the team and they are contributing towards it. Whatever the case, I think the key thing is is recognizing probably that you know to to be given time to rebuild. I think there must be a lot of hospitality businesses at the moment thinking, my goodness, you know, we've got to get through the next ninety days probably to get through till spring before we can rebound if they had the confidence to know that things like the VAT cut would be extended to know that business rates relief would be extended at least then they have hopefully the confidence to keep their teams employed because the worry at the moment must be you know how many people will go look I don't need those those people for the next 90 days painful though it may be they're costing me you know a significant amount of months money in pension and NI and, and holiday contributions even with furlough and they end up letting them go but I think if we can dangle that carrot and say look the support won't be cut off uh, in March as it's supposed to be. It will be extended for the full sort of financial year. I think that would make a big difference. Would you agree with that? I, I would absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you put it. You put it very well. Mark. That, that's absolutely. But I think inherent in what you say is this: this need to understand the different sectors. And I think that's been missed entirely. And you're, you're absolutely right when you point out that the, the restaurant trade have been affected in a completely different way from the asset-backed hotels. And, and there is this misunderstanding that hospitality is, is one industry and it's not. It's a whole load of very, very different sectors with different needs and different vulnerabilities. And, and that isn't really recognised, I don't think, in government policy. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're uh, running out of time, turning to sort of some of the things that you've already done. I noticed, you, did you ever imagine you would be setting up a takeaway food business, Richard? <laughs> Uh, no, no, uh, no, and it's great actually. It's great. It's it, it, huge demand for it, which which is not surprising. Um, so, Calcott at home this this weekend is your first weekend, isn't it? People can come in and they can pre-order food and pick it up. And is this sort of ready-made, or they 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 cook it at home? How does it work? Yeah, that's no, not the first week actually. We've been running it. Uh, we started in November. In November, November oh, okay. lockdown, we we started it, and then we had a huge New Year. We did matters at New Year's Eve through it, and uh, we've just launched a new website to support it, which is why it all looks a bit new and we we changed the menus etc so it does look a bit new but no it's 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 all it's all uh it's prepared to a, to a kind of oven ready condition if you like in our own kitchens it's sent out with very attractive and easy to read and easy to do finishing instructions it's not a pile of ingredients um it's something which needs to be popped into the oven to be finished off uh, and a sauce which just needs needs reheating and some veg which need popping into some hot water so it's really easy and really quick and yes, it's it's proving really really popular, and it's keeping our teams teams busy and exercised, and uh, so it's great. I I, I don't know whether we're, we're, it's something we'll continue. I keep being asked, will we will we continue this when we reopen? And and, and I I suspect not. I hope we'll be too busy to accommodate it. But it's it's been a great thing to do. I have to say, during the first lockdown, we we um, in the March lockdown, we we did the same thing, but we did it for the vulnerable. It was a, it was an idea from Richard Davis, our, our executive chef, to. Um, to cook for the vulnerable and they came and did exactly the same thing but we worked through a local organization who distributed the food to um those people who were shielded um uh, and and vulnerable and that was was equally equally rewarding um the stone family were good enough to fund that um and our our, our boys and girls put the time into it and that was probably more rewarding actually than, than, than what we're doing now yeah 
amazing. I think so much of the sector in it, and it's probably one of the reasons why we've come out of this. I think with a, I know it gives a good PR, but like you say, maybe more recognition than we had historically. Is one people really really miss that opportunity to go out and spend some time with family and friends, but two, I think we you know we did stand up and we you know we've clearly we've fed hungry school children, we've fed the vulnerable, we've you know delivered food to hospitals and NHS. I think in hospitality, if you if you're in it for the right reasons and you love it, you know it's riddled through your DNA is this sort of this desire to look after other people and and, and make sure that they're well and make them happy, and we've proved that you know people who could have been cynical and just gone look there's an industry full of yeah venture venture capitalists fast growth companies have seen my goodness it can't be about the bean counters because we've all stood up and said look what can we do how can we help how can we look after you because that's what hospitality is isn't it yeah and actually to pick up on that positive mark it's um i've been uh you know really uh excited and pleased to see this kind of collaboration that's built up uh, between uh, suppliers and, and and ourselves and and i've been so impressed by how many of our suppliers put their hands up before we'd even asked them and said look you know we've got a contract with you forget about that until you're back trading we, we won't even worry about that and uh and most of those people just came with it without even really asking and there's there's been this just been this general feeling of support you know we can get through this together and that's a really positive thing and i i hope that uh, it's not just between suppliers and and ourselves it's also between our clients some of our clients have been so supportive and um kind of expressed concern for us whereas what our concern has been that we've, we haven't been able to honor their stay um and the fortitude and and commitment and resilience of our teams has, has, has just been so extraordinary um uh, the anxiety they, they've had to deal with themselves has, has been enormous and um, I'm sure it's taken taken its toll in terms of mental health, but you know, in between times, their, their fortitude and strength has, has uh, really not not me off my stool. Um, mm. And we, we were very lucky to have you know, three great months in the summer, um, which really saved the business. Really, I mean, those three months were very very lucrative, and and our team just came back in, and uh, we were we were short staffed um, uh, because we needed to be. And they just they just worked so hard, flat out for three months because they knew we needed to fill the coffers. Uh, we didn't even have to ask them; they they just got and did it, and it, it was you know really really uh, uh, fantastic to see. Mm. Now I share that 100 exactly the same, and 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 you know sort of humbling uh, and very emotional to see yeah both customer support, but yeah to to see the flexibility of the teams and what you throw at them, and you know we're open today and we're closed tomorrow, and even as you know as recently as New Year's Eve, you know my head chef seen on on the 30th prepping all the food and you know we hadn't really pushed new year because there wasn't much of me that thought that we would actually be open for it but the fact that we didn't get closed down until midnight that day you know the chefs had been in they prepped the food just in case and then it's kind of like right we're shut what are we going to do with it and, and you look at them and you go can't it be easy for them to, to whinge and moan and you know stress and curse and uh, they've been yeah brilliant brilliantly supportive and, and flexible and uh, yeah reminds us certainly reminded me of what a lovely sector it is uh, that we work in, I guess. Speaking of which, looking back over your career, so you, you know you've won awards on a personal level, you've won business awards. You know, is, is there an award, or is there something that you've done in the business? Is there something you look back on over the last thirty years that always sort of makes you grin and makes you particularly excited and and, and proud to, I suppose, of of dedicated a life to hospitality. Well, awards are great, can't they? The awards, awards make us feel good. They're, they're, they're really, they're, they're lovely, lovely to have. So I don't, I don't want to belittle them, but um, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't, I don't think they're the, they're the be all and end all. I think my, my, I enjoyed my time working for Master Inn Holders. I enjoyed that. I think Master Inn Holders, uh, as, as a group of hoteliers, gave us some clout to do that, to be able to actually make a difference 
uh, we had a bit of a bit of um, backing behind us and that. So that that was probably a, a very meaningful part of my career. Well, I I, I chaired that organisation for for a year. I, I think probably the thing I'm most proud of and um, is is our association and support with Hospitality Action, uh, which is a charity that is so important. So, you know, we know how many people we employ in this industry. Um, you know, we know how vulnerable that that, that group is, and and HA do a fantastic job in in picking up the vulnerable there, and it's only our, our own industry that will support them. Uh, and so as, a, as an organisation, as a group, as a company, we've really got behind that and we've, we've created events, to, which are the kinder events, cycling events and polo events, which have uh, which supported that charity, and that's ongoing. And uh, that's probably given me the greatest reward and pleasure of, of all, all those things that, that we've done and hope to continue to do. Thank you so much for sparing the time, Richard. You know, great, great to hear you, Jenny. Congratulations on all, you, all you've achieved. The venues look absolutely stunning. I will come and see you at some point. Uh, people who've enjoyed uh, hearing about your story and want to know more, is there a particular social media channel, website? Where should people go to either follow you personally or or Calcott Collection? I'm not, I'm not a lover of it. I'm there somewhere. I've got, I'm, I'm there on all of them. You can find me somewhere. But Calcott Collection, search Calcott Collection, and you'll be linked into the organisation and you'll, you'll find me there. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Best of luck. And I'm sure our paths will cross in the future. And if you're ever in Bournemouth, uh, pop in for a beer on the beach. I shall do that, Mark. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. Sorry that in the last few minutes, there were some sound elements that were a little less than perfect. I think we'd exhausted the internet connection by the end of our conversation. But I hope you feel inspired by Richard's journey and took away a few nuggets of wisdom. I'll be back next Monday, where, if all goes well, this week I'll have had a chat with Jonathan Neem, Chief Executive of the Shepherd Neem Brewery, and the opportunity to chat to a business that has existed since the year 1698 excites me greatly. But I've not had the conversation yet, so tune back in next week to see what I learn. Cheers.